Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress, Channel 127. Welcome to it. I'm John Fugelsang. Thank you to Dean Obadala and the entire excellent crew at the Dean Obadala Show for being such an excellent lead-in. Hope you guys are ready. We're going to bring you all the way till tomorrow morning. If you're on the East Coast, we'll bring you all the way till primetime on the West. We're going to be live for the next three hours, taking your calls at 866-997-4748. That is 866-997-GRIT. We got a lovely lineup tonight. Guys, so much happened today. It has been like a kind of a slow news day, kind of a slow day. Today, everything happened, and we're going to go over it all with Professor Corey Brechneider. We're also going to be talking to the hosts of the Last Mile radio show. That's Eric Maserati E. Abercrombie and Chris Redlitz, who's been on the show before. It's an amazing new radio show on Sirius XM that's all about prison reform and the road to success for men and women who have been incarcerated. It's totally fascinating. It's about politics. It's about morality. It's about business. And it's just great, great, inspiring stories about humans uh, finding the best inside themselves. I'm really excited to have those guys on the show. You know, CNN, I love you, but your headline says Robert Blake, known for his roles in the film In Cold Blood and TV show Beretta, dies at 89. Uh, That's not all he's known for. In fact, CNN, that's not primarily what he's been known for in this century. But rest in peace to Robert Blake, one of the last of the little rascals, by the way. He's died at age 89. Obviously, his entire career uh, a very gritty roles in being a terrific actor was completely overshadowed by his trial and acquittal in his wife's murder for the murder uh, in Studio City 20 years ago now. But as a kid, he worked with Laurel and Hardy. He he worked with Jack Benny and he was in the final Our Gang serials as Mickey. Just an amazing career. And uh, but of course, he will be remembered for something very different. So let's get to it. Let's do a show. 
we have a lot to get to, and I need you guys to bear with me because the Republican Party's lost their minds. We're going to talk a bit about how Manhattan's DA has now offered Donald Trump the chance to testify next week in the investigation of hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, which is a signal that imminent criminal charges are likely. We'll do a deep dive on that with Professor Corey Breschneider. And how likely is it that after how many years of investigating, they came up with a misdemeanor and their star witness is Michael Cohen? Is Really? Is that what the indictment fairy finally brings when she comes to our house? But I, I, have, to, I have to ask the question. The GOP has lost their minds. Let me count the ways. This party, I don't know what the overall strategy is beyond get the most hardcore right wing folk who already support the Republicans to support them even harder and drive away independents, moderates, young people, women, non-white people and Christians who've actually read the Gospels. Let me begin with uh, let's do church and state, shall we? Because this week or actually last week, the Southern Baptist Convention in the 21st century decided to throw out one of its biggest, most popular churches, uh, maybe one of the most famous churches in the bill, uh, in, in, in the entire country. And of course, um, we're talking about Saddleback Church, the famous Saddleback Church run by Pastor Rick Warren, who is hardly a liberal, right? This is the guy who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. He has always been against marriage equality. He hangs out with those Hobby Lobby guys. He sued to stop his own employees from using their own insurance to pay for contraception, okay? He's hardcore against abortion. He believes in forced childbirth. He's as right-wing as they come. And he's a big celebrity, helps get presidents elected, and the the Southern Baptists have kicked his church out. And you know why? Because there's one thing he's done, and just one. Two years ago, Saddleback ordained three women as pastors. That's it. And at the time, like everyone was saying, oh, this is so historic, it's so historic. And then, and then he retired and he handed over the reins of power to Pastor Andy Wood. And they they ordained two other female ministers. And I, I guess it should be shocking because Christianity needs all the help it can get. In 1976, four out of five of us identified as a white Christian. Now... Now, white Christians are only 43% of the population. A big part of this is that we have raised a generation of people who don't think they're religious, but they do consider themselves spiritual. And they have reached adulthood, and they have left the religion they were raised in. I happen to believe people leave these religions because they're turned off by the hypocrisy, often by men in dresses and funny hats telling you about marriage advice. But this is like, I mean, this isn't Catholic. This is Saddleback Church. They have over half a million YouTube followers. This, I mean, this guy's got a huge, his book sold 50 million copies. But the evangelicals don't care. They would rather cling to unbiblical sexism than the 21st century. And I say unbiblical because you can't be a chauvinist and believe in women as second class citizens this is my this is my this was honestly i don't talk about this but that was the number one thing that i think uh caused me to break with the catholic church it wasn't the homophobia it wasn't the abortion it wasn't the child rape at a very young age i realized how are you going to tell me that 51 percent of this population is unfit to say mass 
You know, Jesus is arguably the biggest feminist in the Bible. When he comes back from the dead, if you read the story and believe it, the first people he appeared to are the women. You know who doesn't abandon Jesus when he's executed by the state and is humiliated and beaten and is a dying naked criminal on the cross, the women are there. And Jesus consistently stands up for women. He overturns the divorce laws of Moses in a huge feminist move. So in the early church, women were priests. But of course, you know, the Vatican and the evangelicals have the same idea. No knob, no job. They're making their religion smaller. They're driving people away. Meanwhile, can we talk about the Republican Party in Tennessee? Because we mentioned this briefly last night. Tell me how this sounds. Tell me if you want to campaign on this or against this in 2024. Tennessee House Representatives, we mentioned this late last night, passed a bill that's going to allow county clerks or people to refuse to perform a marriage if they disagree with it. This bill passed on Monday, and it said a person should not be required to solemnize a marriage if the person has an objection to solemnizing the marriage based on the person's conscience or religious beliefs. And it also will allow county clerks to not issue a marriage license if they feel something about this marriage goes against their values. So in other words, what they essentially did was they're allowing individuals, not the state, but individuals to ban same-sex marriage, to ban interfaith marriage, to ban mixed-race marriage, to ban marriage when one member is transgender. Tennessee already has a law saying religious leaders don't have to officiate weddings they object to. There's nothing new here. This bill goes beyond that, and it lets county clerks refuse to certify marriage licenses. So, in other words, a Kim Davis can tell you that you don't get to do it. It's not even just saying, no, go find a new officiant. That's the old law. I'm sorry, I'm not going to perform your ceremony against someone else. No, this is going to allow a county clerk to refuse to certify marriage licenses. Now, this is the law of the land. I mean, not just because of the Supreme Court. We just had Joe Biden and the Democrats deliver the Respect for Marriage Act. Joe Biden signed it right before Christmas. But there's a loophole in that law. A lot of critics said the Respect for Marriage Act didn't go far enough. The bill was amended in Congress so many times eventually to say that religious organizations don't have to marry same-sex couples. And the law also doesn't require states to actually issue same-sex marriage licenses. And so Tennessee's right wing has found their loophole. And they passed this bill alongside another measure that would require drag artists to get a permit from the government before they perform. This is it, folks. The war on drags. <laughs> They're doing it. This, and this is right after Bill Lee, the governor, signed two new laws, one banning drag performances in public. And then, of course, we saw his old college yearbook picture where there he is in drag. And then another banning gender affirming care for minors, regardless of what the minors and their families and the doctors treating them want. Human rights campaign has slammed Tennessee's ongoing obsession with anti-LGBTQ legislation because instead of focusing on the issues that people in Tennessee actually care about, they're wasting time and using their power to beat up on marginalized groups because that's what fascists do. They create a problem that doesn't really exist. Drag queens are bad for your kids. Transgender children playing sports is bad for your kids. Transgender children being allowed to be transgender is bad for your kids. 
undocumented immigrants crossing the border and obeying our laws and working backbreaking labor for less than minimum wage is bad for your kids. And once they convince you that you are somehow under attack by some powerless group, then they sell themselves as the only savior to beat back this menace. And that's what's happening right now. This might go to the Supreme Court eventually. And then what happens? (laughs) I mean, will the Supreme Court put this down? I don't know if this Supreme Court will be as enlightened as the one that had a Reagan appointee who made marriage equality the law of the land. And now I save the best for last because, again, the Republican Party has lost their damn minds. What do you think I'm going to say? I mean, what tops the evangelicals kicking out Saddleback because they ordained women? What tops Tennessee finding a way to deny interracial marriages If a low-level government clerk doesn't like it, how do you top that? I give you West Virginia. The Republican-dominated Senate Judiciary Committee in West Virginia defeated a bill on a 9-8 vote a week after it passed the House of Delegates. 9-8, this bill went down. It was a bill sponsored by a Democrat, Kayla Young of Kanawha County. And the bill would have prohibited minors from getting married in West Virginia. See, since the year 2000, it turns out there's been more than 3,600 marriages in the state of West Virginia involving one or more children. Now, currently, a child can marry as young as 16 in West Virginia if they get their parents' consent. If you want to marry younger than 16, you have to get a judge's waiver. you got to find an old man to say it's okay for this 14-year-old girl to be married off to a man. And then they do it. The Republicans killed it. They wanted to pass a law saying age of consent is 18. That's it. And you can't get married if you're younger than 18. Uh, Didn't happen. Kanawha County Republican Senator Mike Stewart, former federal prosecutor, he said his vote wasn't a vote against women. He said his mother got married when she was 16. And six months later, I came along. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Child marriage. Republicans in West Virginia are protecting child marriage. Republicans in Tennessee are now able to have low-level government clerks deny marriage licenses to tax-paying, law-abiding, consenting adults. And the evangelicals have kicked out their most popular church because they dare treat women as equals. I'm sorry, this thing in West Virginia, it would have established that 18 is the age of consent and removed the ability of a minor to obtain consent through their parents, legal guardians, and court petition. Uh, According to the Pew Research Center, West Virginia has the highest rate of child marriages among the states. This is in 2014. The state's five-year average was 7.1 marriages for every 1,000 children between the ages of 15 and 17. So what do they prioritize? What is the Republican Party fighting for beyond this stuff? How are they actually doing anything to help your life? Twitter hearings. That's how. All day long for three Ruling hours. The weaponization committee headed by Jim Jordan made a complete mockery of itself and our Congress. I hope you got to watch it. If you didn't, I'm going to be bringing you highlights all night long. It was just uh, just stunning. And I want to play some. But let's go to the phones first. A lot of you have been waiting on hold for a while. We'll be playing clips of it all night. Also, Joe Biden released his budget today. It's not really a budget. Joe Biden released his reelection campaign document today. You know, Democrats are really angry about some real policies the Biden White House is doing related to immigration, uh, related to letting D.C. 
decide their own laws and fate. So they gave a Democratic wish list that reads like liberal porn. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It will never be an actual U.S. budget. But it's pretty smart. Joe Biden's budget was a campaign document, and we're going to talk about it tonight because he will be using it, starting with insulin at $35 capped. He will be using this budget to draw a distinction between himself and the Republican Party for the next two years. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And welcome back. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Thank you so much for being with us. We are again at 866-997-4748. And uh, John, my friend in Brooklyn, I'm sorry we got cut off. If you call us back, you'll go to the front of the queue. Right now, however, I'm so... Yes, Chris? I mean, maybe not the front of the queue. Well, you know, I do feel bad for the guy. I don't want him to think I was running away. We won't kick him out of the restaurant, but I don't know if he's in the first table that pops up. (laughs) Well, he can because Corey Brettschneider is here. And let me tell you, on a day when we learn from the New York Times, prosecutors signal criminal charges for Trump are likely. There is no one I would rather talk to than a professor in political science at Brown University. Corey, of course, has written amazing political analysis for Politico, the New York Times and Time magazine. You must get his book, The Oath and the Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents and check out his Penguin Liberty series books on free speech. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's notable cases and impeachment. This is the guy you always want to talk to for anything related to the Supreme Court or DAs in the post-Trump era. Professor Brett Schneider, welcome back. Thanks, John. Looking forward to talking. And yeah, quite quite a new story we got uh, not too long before the show started. This just happened. So this is related to yeah. Stormy Daniels. I know whenever we talk about Donald Trump malfeasance, we have to put it in the right column. But this is the DA's office said to Trump's lawyers that he might be facing criminal charges for the hush money to Stormy Daniels. Uh, and I, I guess it only took six years for this to happen. Yeah. <laughs> what are your initial <laughs> thoughts, Professor? I have I mean, many questions. One, like, what is going on here? And, you know, one one thought I guess I had is they clearly had the goods to do this earlier. And I think it was, a, unfortunately, a blunder by the Manhattan District Attorney to not do it, you know, much, much sooner when everything was fresher, the facts were fresher. And I think one, you know, I'm just using common sense here about when one of the prosecutors involved in the case resigned and really slammed the district attorney, who, by the way, ran, of course, as a progressive for backing off this case. I think that must have just put enormous pressure. And 
you know, and so, his response in public was, you know, this guy cut, cut and left, but we're still working on it. And, and I guess this is an attempt to save face. Of course, they should that's have it. said it earlier. And that was my you nailed it. Everything, yeah. everything, everything you just said. We were all, all, when all the left was attacking Alvin Bragg last year for not doing this, it does seem mm-hmm. like it's a little bit of retconning and damage control on the part of the New York DA's office. Can, can I ask some dumb questions, Professor? Um, shouldn't this be a federal case? Please, and there I mean, are no dumb questions, as you know. Okay, well, shouldn't it be a federal <laughs> case? It was a federal presidential election. I, I get the whole notion that this was a campaign contribution. He spent, what was uh-huh. it? A, let's go back to that file. He spent $127,000. Uh, so she would say that she didn't have sex with him. He still says he never had the affair. So he paid a woman for no sex. That's still his official line. I understand how that could be a campaign contribution. You are spending money to try to win an election. So I I, I get that part of the logic. But why isn't this a federal case instead of the New York DA? I think it could have been. But, you know, the reality was that the Department of Justice, although they are looking into some possible criminal charges against Trump, my sense is that this isn't one of them. And from the beginning, uh, remember, this is the case, just to go back and, and remind li- listeners that we talked about where they were seeking the subpoena of Trump, and he argued that because he was a sitting president, he was immune from the subpoena. That was all this case, and the Manhattan district attorney had basically picked it up right right after going really back to, to 2016 and had been investigating it and pursuing it since then. So the bottom line is the feds didn't want to do it. But it was a crime, I guess, I understand, that that was took place within New York. Michael Cohen, of course, did all the payments, and the, it was through the Trump organization that was based here in the campaign. So, it, you know, there also are local jurisdictions can indict for uh, crimes that take place within their, their, their realm, within their jurisdiction, and, and uh, federal as well as local crimes can, can be the subject of a, of a a local indictment. Fascinating. This would, of course, be the first indictment of a former American president in the history of this country. And, you know, Professor, that expression gets thrown around so much the past couple of years. I think it's lost a bit of its power. How how significant would it be to you as a professor of law to actually, for the first time, that's not to say lots of presidents haven't broken laws before, but to actually right. see a former one get indicted? Yeah, there was a possibility that certainly that Richard Nixon was going to be indicted. And um, I think Nixon would have been indicted. And I'm working on this now as part of a a forthcoming book that will have all the details. But the bottom line is, I think Nixon would have been indicted were it not for the pardon. The pardon stopped that and um, at least stopped all, all federal prosecutions. And what was being looked at were federal crimes by a federal grand jury. Uh, And, you know, think of the consequence of that. To me, it was really a failure of the country as a whole to see a trial in which somebody who was a former president wasn't put on a pedestal, wasn't turned into an elder statesman the way that that pardon did, but really let us look at the crimes of a man. And uh, of course, Nixon was a deeply flawed man. Now, that didn't happen. And the fact that it didn't, I think, has been a travesty. And so, while I've been critical of the district attorney for, for waiting so long, I think it's enormously important that we see the raw, you know, venality of, yes. of, of Donald Trump here. And 
and his crimes are exposed in the open, and we reveal him not to have any special powers or special immunity, not to be, uh, in the words of U.S. v. Nixon, not to be above the law. I mean, that's the goal. And of course, it's been five years looking into this. We all remember long ago, back in the days when 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 Michael Avenatti's roamed the land in the in the <laughs> wild, uh, 130 grand paid to this adult film star, Stephanie Clifford, Stormy Daniels. In the final days, Michael Cohen made the payment. Trump lied multiple times about the payment. And we later found out that Trump did reimburse Cohen. Now, Michael Cohen, who's been on this show, I've been on his show, uh, he's expected to testify in front of the grand jury. He hasn't done that yet. I know that in New York State, if you're potentially a defendant, you have the right to answer questions in the grand jury before you get indicted. That's what this invitation was today from the DA to Donald Trump's lawyers? Yeah, and that's why the Times is reporting it the way that it, it, it is. You know, I'm sure like you and everyone, Thea and I were talking about this uh, before I got on with you. Uh, you know, why is it finally happening? We've been talking for years. Oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But this reporting has a different tone to it. It suggests that it is imminent and it is happening uh, in, in a, with a kind of certainty that you don't usually see. And it's for that reason that New York uh, has this, uh, right of those who are about to be indicted to voluntarily or to be invited and voluntarily they don't have to come to right. testify before the grand jury that almost never happens but why yeah. would trump be voluntarily you know, invited for a voluntary testimony they know he's not gonna uh take that option and show up and so it must right. be i think that's how people are 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 reading the tea leaves here this, this is pretty clearly imminent and and happening it's very theatrical. I don't really, I, I don't really understand what Alvin Bragg is thinking. Of course, Donald Trump tries to not show up when he gets a, a legal subpoena. So, I mean, he he literally right. blows off subpoenas. So, I mean, why would he show up when he's compelled? He, he just takes the fifth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And is this is this just theatric? Is it theatric? They have to invite him. So, is this just theatrics? Is this just Alvin Bragg getting the public and the media ready for what's coming. It, it, I don't oh. really understand the civic purpose of this announcement. It sort of, sort of seems no, like a teaser. A, thing. My, right. I see. Sorry. I, my understanding is that there is a unique, uh, distinct legal requirement in New York that if you are going to charge somebody with a crime, that the district attorney is required to formally invite that person to come and offer testimony to the grand jury to say why they shouldn't be indicted. Now right. that they okay. say yes or no. So this isn't, I don't think, a voluntary decision on the part of Bragg. I think he had to do it. Ah, okay. That's, so that's, that's great. That's why we're getting this sort of like kind of reporting that we're getting. That's This is happening. I, I don't see what, there, you know, there's no source or anything, no leak. It's it's based on this this fact that there would be no reason to have him invited to speak to the grand jury had it were it not for the fact that they're indicting him. A pure formality, I see. So can I can I ask your thoughts on the politics of all this, Professor? Because sure. on the one hand, it's going to make a lot of liberals really happy. On the other hand, uh, this is probably going to give Donald Trump another five to ten points of a lead over Ron DeSantis. I mean, I'm already seeing Donald Trump on the campaign 
talking about being persecuted by the deep state over a campaign <laughs> contribution. I mean, I think this is a misdemeanor, right? Falsification of business records is a misdemeanor. So I, I could already see the right wing narrative. They looked at me for five years and all they got is a misdemeanor. And your star witness is Michael Cohen, who lies. He lies. OK, like it just seems like this is tailor made for Trump to gain sympathy from. I'm not sure. I thought the crime, look, we don't know what the charges are going to be, but I think they are more serious than um, a, a misdemeanor, that there are minor felonies the way that I'm seeing it described. Just I see. OK. Reading. And so I think the penalty is at the discretion of the judge up to four years in prison. So, no, this is a serious crime. Um, you know, he he there are a variety of things that he did here is bribery. There's um, violation of campaign finance laws. There are the questions of obstruction. And so depending on what he's, he's charged with, it looks like the, there are felonies on the table that could take, uh, you know, four years in prison. That would be really something if the former president is, is sentenced to that. And I, I just, as a matter of common sense, don't think they would be doing anything less than that. It, it, they're not going to go after him for a misdemeanor because all that would yeah. do is, as you say, feed into the right wing. But getting a conviction, <laughs> seeing the former president sentenced to four years, that's, you yeah. know, that's that's something quite serious. I think. <laughs> although it's going to help him with the base, it wouldn't help him from prison. I don't think exactly. I'm not sure too, he'll get an initial boost. I'm not sure. Again, you know, he better. He, I think he does have the goods here. But as the public sees all of this uh, in the long term, you know, in the course of a trial, the course of a conviction, some of his loyal, most loyal supporters, of course, will stick with him. But, mm. you know, others might think this guy is not worth it. and Let's just go for another candidate like DeSantis. Wow. You know what? I mean, it'd be beautiful. I'm still hoping that Donald Trump is bled dry by defense attorneys and that Ron DeSantis <laughs> is ruined by all this because I, I believe in the future. I just love the fact that this has already cost Donald Trump so much money for what was probably about 35 seconds of actual sex. Um, I, I Now I have to ask you, <laughs> I mean, that's probably the maximum we're talking about here and he's still paying for it. So I love the whole thing. Uh, but professor, I know some people think this is a flippant story. Some people think this isn't real news. Some people will say, look, I get it. You hate Trump, but what about the issues that actually affect me? And that's why I want to salute West Virginia for taking on the issues that really affect uh, struggling Americans. Transgender <laughs> children playing sports. Oh, my God, Corey. West Virginia's attorney general is asking the far right Supreme Court of West Virginia to allow the state to enforce a ban to save families by not allowing 11 year old trans girls to do track and field. Thank God. Can I just say thank God? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the, uh, you know, the issue of. The, the right wing in the midst of continued mass poverty, uh, environmental destruction. They are really worried about, uh, you know, these 14 to 18 year old kids uh, being on what they think is the wrong sports team. And, you know, in this one, uh, with so much, so many of the issues that are going to wind up before the Supreme Court, I, I think to myself, uh, this is a real problem. Like the Supreme court is so stacked now with Trump appointees that for a long time, we're in trouble on a lot of issues, but interestingly, not this one, the, um, Bostock 
opinion that we've talked about the question of um, uh, whether or not the, for instance, the 1964 Civil Rights Act protection against discrimination in sex when it comes to pay equity and yes. employment, whether that applies to gen- transgender people. There was this remarkable case where the court, including uh, conservatives on the court like Gorsuch, said absolutely that that discriminate sex discrimination includes discrimination against transgender people. Now. This, yeah. this is not about employment, but it's about sports. And there are certainly statutes banning uh, Title IX bans discrimination in regard to sex. The Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution bans uh, the way it's been interpreted, thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, gender discrimination. So I think you might see the court here do the right thing. Uh, you know, they, they might rely on that statute, for instance, and say this is sex discrimination in regard to sports in the same way we saw it earlier in regard to um, uh, employment. And it, it's so egregious that, that anything less would be unconscionable, of course. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. And this is all because of one 11-year-old girl, uh, Becky Pepper Johnson, a transgender girl who wanted to try out for cross-country and track teams. I, I love, by the way, Corey, this happens the same exact day that West Virginia beats down a new bill that would ban child marriage. I mean, it's just amazing what the state is doing. They're making it okay to marry off 14-year-old girls, but they're not going to let trans kids go out for track and field. They're they're right on top of uh where the 21st century is. Yeah, it it has a, you know, 1850 uh let's defend the primacy of 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 uh those born male <laughs> at all costs and uh that's the theme, I think. And, you know, that's the theme of a huge amount of our politics right now. It's just remarkable. Of course, the reason that these things are in the, the news so much are not, not because I don't think that these are, are sincerely the beliefs of even those who are pushing them. I think they see it as a winning issue in certain yeah. jurisdictions. And, you know, the, the assault that they feel under the, the sense of aggrievement, grievance, uh, this is a way of bringing it to the forefront. But, Let's see. I mean, if the Supreme Court doesn't stop this, then, uh, you know, (laughs) it it is a new level of low. And I think they they have they have their standards on on this one issue, thankfully, in a a way that I find surprising. But but you have made me feel very reassured. The right thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, the right wing right wing politicians will always find ways to beat up on marginalized, powerless groups. That's just a constant yeah. throughout our history. But I before I, I, I leave you, Professor, I I do want to um, ask your thoughts on uh, former President Carter, who announced uh, last week that he would be going into hospice and discontinuing medical care. Um, we haven't talked about Jimmy Carter that much in a while, and this is presumably uh, his last days. And you've talked a lot about how he helped the nation recover from Watergate. Yeah, I, I, I hope that we'll we'll talk more about him um, in the coming days and pay tribute to him. You know, he was, he was so overshadowed by Reagan in terms of the supposed charisma of Reagan as opposed to Carter. But the nation in, you know, 1976 to 1980 was really reeling as we are now from a criminal president. And he did more than we've done now, and, and unfortunately more than Biden has done, to try to repair the system, to create accountability. The most important thing I think he did was pass the Ethics and Government Act, and that included the Office of the Independent Counsel, which he submitted to. He said, look, if That's right. there's wrong being done in my administration, then people have to uh, hold themselves to account. So when his 
Um, you know, chief of staff was accused of wrongdoing when others in his administration, he, he, he didn't call the prosecutor all sorts of names and, and <laughs> didn't talk about fake news. <laughs> he just said, okay, well, we'll answer the charges. And uh, what a moment that was, that modesty. Yes. I think we've got to sort of figure out a way to recover and to respect and pay tribute to. Amen. Let's we'll, we'll be talking more about him in the days and weeks to come. Professor Brett Schneider, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone buy a copy of The Oath and The Office. Thank you so much, Corey. We got to take a break. We'll be right back. This is SiriusXM. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. F. Murray Abraham, Academy Award winner. He's when is he on this? It's a yeah, good interview. And, and and guess who? Guess who? I'm sitting down with tomorrow. Who's returning to the show? Uh, uh, Ernie Hudson, who's in this new movie with Woody Harrelson. Ernie Hudson is best known to most people as uh, one of the four Ghostbusters. To me, Ernie Hudson is best known as the Warden on Oz. And that's my segue into talking about the U.S. prison population, because as you guys probably know, if you listen to this channel, the United States contains five percent of the world population. 25% of the world's incarcerated population. And since the 1970s, our prison population has grown 700%. Mass incarceration is a $75 billion a year industry, depending on who you talk to. And at this point in the U.S., the recidivism rate is still over 60%. But whatever you think about the criminal justice system and the way we put people in cages, you have to understand at some point, inmates are released and that brings up the question, what do you want formerly incarcerated Americans to be? Now, SiriusXM has announced a very powerful new series about a prison program that is changing lives through technology. It's the Last Mile Radio, and it's all about both prison reform and the road to success for incarcerated Americans. It was first started by entrepreneurs in tech who recognized the need for technology education behind bars. And The Last Mile is a tech accelerator inside uh, California San Quentin Prison originally, teaching inmates computer coding, business skills, and most importantly, getting a second chance at life. It shares powerful stories, changing perspectives, and it challenges the justice system's status quo, all while making 
seriously entertaining radio program. Um, and it's hosted by a gentleman who was on this show six years ago to the week, uh, Chris Redlitz, co-founder of The Last Mile, the most progressive prison education program in the world. And he's also the managing partner of Transmedia Capital, one of the best performing micro funds in uh, Silicon Valley. And he's also brought along with him uh, his co-host, who I'm very excited to welcome, formerly incarcerated Eric Abercrombie, who goes by Maserati E. He was featured in the Emmy-nominated documentary Q-Ball, and uh, Mr. Abercrombie learned sound design and film while he was incarcerated at San Quentin. I can't praise their show enough. It is all about the best of America, and you can listen to it on SiriusXM Triumph, Channel 111, Saturday mornings, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You won't want to miss it. Gentlemen, welcome. It's great to have you both. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us on, John. Thank you. It was a very long and wordy introduction, but I, I, I want to set the stage for, for what you guys are doing here. Because again, you know what? It's, it's one thing if it meets with my values and politics, but it's also just great storytelling and great radio. Chris, how many years ago was it the first time you entered San Quentin uh, for the first time? Uh, you, I know you were invited to speak to a group of men about business and entrepreneurship because of your background yep. in, in venture capital. Yeah, it was 12 years ago now. Uh, so it's been a journey and we've seen tremendous growth since then. You know, as you know, we started out as an entrepreneurship program and we pivoted to teaching software engineering and coding in 2014. And now today we're uh, currently in seven states, 26 classrooms, and we look to double the size of the organization and our uh, sort of representation throughout the country in the next couple of years. It's really, really amazing. And um, I want to ask you, do you want me to call you Maserati E? How do you like to be addressed? (laughs) Actually, I really don't have any preference, but Maserati E definitely works. (laughs) Well, fantastic. I'm thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the show for the first time. I I think your story is really inspiring, and I'd love for you uh, to just share a bit with our listeners about your journey from incarceration to advocate uh, and activist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So unfortunately, at the age of 17, during the commission of a robbery, I shot a man. But fortunately for the both of us, that man lived. And ultimately, I was sentenced to 10 years with two strikes in prison. And during my journey of incarceration, it was a lot that I learned. It was a lot that I learned about myself. It was a lot that I learned about the ways of the world. It was a lot that I learned about the systemic design of oppression. And Mm. ultimately, one of the takeaways, um, I realized that I battled with a lot. I battled with power issues. I felt like I didn't have value. I felt like I didn't have a voice. And it was a lot of unprocessed trauma. And that showed up in so many different ways. So I was very fortunate fortunate to find a safe place within a very toxic environment and create a healthy support system um, and and rely heavily on the people around me and, and, and take a lot of tools from their toolbox. And um, fast forward a couple years, my last two years, I'm in San Quentin State Prison, and I meet a man by the name of Jason Jones, who was part of the last mile. And I was able to see how that impacted his life. And ultimately, that quite literally changed the trajectory of mine. And that really allowed me to tighten up my walk because I was motivated in so many different ways and seeing how the trajectory of his life changed and how he was disciplined in so many different areas and things like that. And now... Fast forward today, you see me alongside of the founder, Chris Redless, and we're on Last Mile Radio, man. It's going down. It's been a hell of a journey. <laughs> but I, I, what I find most inspiring, I think, is that so much of this show, from what I've heard, 
is that it really educates people who've never been inside about all the work that yes. incarcerated people do. Like, I mean, if you're going to make that journey and not just sit out your time, but actually make that journey, the, the it's like 20 years of therapy in one year. And it's just concentrated in an incredible amount of growth and, and discovery that seems to be the one trait that unites all these stories. Absolutely. Yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead, Eddie. I- I was I was going to say, absolutely. I think one thing that a lot of a, a lot of people don't realize is that work that people put in. I think a lot of people see individuals like myself and, and see me as like the exception when in actuality, yeah. I'm the reflection of what takes place when afforded the opportunity to shine. It's not like I went to prison and I was bad and now I'm good. It's like a lot of work gets put in and have to process trauma. We have to really get in tune of why I caused harm, what got me to that point, and then the things to, to take place to alter that. I'm, I'm wondering, Chris, were, were, the, were the inmates you first spoke with skeptical at first? Did it take people a while to warm to the program? Absolutely. You know, when I walked in and, and I started this with my, with my wife and, and co-founder Beverly Parenti, who we'd been business partners for, you know, the last 30 years. So I knew that if I was going to do this, I had to do it with her. So we actually, for the first two years, we went into San Quentin two nights a week and taught this program ourselves. And it was around entrepreneurship. And I would wave my arm saying, if you guys work really hard, you're going to get a job in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I know they were rolling their eyes and looking at me. And, and I said, no, you need to believe. And that statement really stuck to the point now with in every one of our classrooms, there's a sign that says believe in the process because there's there's a matter of of trust and belief when you first start these. I mean, I was new to prison. I'd never been in prison before. And you have to develop trust with those residents that you're dealing with inside prison. And, you know, the, the administration has to have a, a, a you know modicum of trust for you as well. So it was it was building that rapport over time and, you know, seeing results and as as he said, you know, once you have a couple of graduates that get out and show success, they come back and tell their story, then, you know, it's done. I mean, people are really bought into it. And we've seen that now. The dedication and commitment that people have is really astounding. Yeah, I, I'm very curious about that. You know, like, what's it like when people who've left prison come back to share their stories? I can say from firsthand experience, it's it's extremely impactful in so many different ways. It, it allows you to see what's possible first and foremost. Uh, unfortunately, especially for those that have served a long period of time incarcerated, um, you begin to kind of like lose your sense of value and you begin to really yeah. internalize these self-input mental limitations. And it's real easy to start believing that you're incapable of a lot of things. So when you hear these success stories and then they actually take the time to come back and bless you with their presence. I, I say it all the time. Presence is priceless. When they come back and bless you with their presence and they're sharing these stories, it's like you're winning with them. It's like you become a part of the journey and it inspires you to, to a very large degree to want to do the same and, and it makes it possible. So then now that you believe it and you're convicted in that, you begin to alter your walk and take the steps needed in order to accomplish whatever it is you want to accomplish. Yeah. And I want to add to that too, real quick, you know, there's, there's a sense of you live in a box, you know, literally in prison, you live in a box, you're, you're sort of 
mental outlook is is very limited. And so what we've tried to do is break through that threshold and create a, a, a higher ceiling of expectation. And I think that's what's happened now where we have people getting out of prison with no, no formal education, going through our program, getting hired by software uh, companies, by tech companies as software engineers and making six figure salaries. That Amazing. didn't seem that didn't seem possible. So that ceiling of expectation has really, you know, broken through to, to a whole nother level. See, and this is what what makes me crazy, because we we used to have in this country hundreds of prison education programs. And then in the big Republican revolution of 1994, they came in there and were saying, why are we spending all this money? Blah, blah, blah. You know, for every one dollar we spend on prison education, we save five dollars on reincarceration costs. I made a movie about this for PBS years ago, but they, they did it anyway. And the number of prison programs went from several hundred to around a dozen nationwide. I get down because it almost seems like it's by design because keeping men in jail, especially nonviolent drug offenders in jail for a long time, we know is good for business. I mean, tell our listeners a bit about what people are up against, both in terms of of people incarcerated and in terms of people who want to change because you, Chris, represent the private sector coming in to do this because the government won't do it. Yeah, I think that's a key point, John. It's really, we believe that this is necessary to have strong public-private partnerships in order to create change. If you expect the legacy system to change, they won't change. So you need people to come in. You know, I took it to an extreme, I guess, but you need to take people from the private sector who have means and capabilities, leverage and networks that can help build programs like this. And um, we've seen the results. And honestly, the cost is very limited. You think about California, we spend over 100,000 a year to incarcerate somebody. The average cost for our student is about five to $6,000 to fully educate. Now, that's that's kind of a stunning number, but that's the amount that it costs to make a change, and that's the amount of it costs to change legacy systems. So, you know, people need to rally around that. People in the business yeah. sector really need to rally around this cause. Maserati, let me ask you, what do people need to understand both about the adjustment to living in prison and the adjustment to post-incarceration. We see a lot of movies about, you know, men and women who have to adjust to living behind bars. We don't hear a lot of stories about what it's like to adjust to being back outside. Absolutely. I think for starters, the overall perception needs to alter in the ways of understanding that it's people behind these walls. I think due to a lot of the leading narratives that get sensationalized, people begin to really lose sight of that. And they think it's just these scumbags and monsters behind these walls when in actuality sure. is brothers, cousins, sisters, fathers. Um, so, so many different people that made a terrible mistake and are putting in the work to rectify that. And I think that right there can begin to alter a lot. I'm a firm believer. People treat you the way they see you, and that can be lethal when you're not seen as an equal. So right. I think that's first and foremost the one thing that people begin need to begin to really understand. And I think the treatment will begin to alter very shortly after once that's understood. And as far as getting back acclimated back into society, it's a lot of struggles. Um, I know for myself, I adopted a lot of antisocial tendencies because I began to really internalize 
um, feeling limited. I began to really internalize feeling like I didn't have value. When I first got mm-hmm. to San Quentin after yeah. doing seven, eight years in other prisons where we didn't have the proximity factor to what we called the free people, I, I recall being so timid and, and very quiet. I wasn't outspoken. And I, I, it really made me feel uncomfortable to shake someone's hand. San Quentin is a place where you can actually shake hands and things like that. So being embraced and being seen as if I had value, at least enough value to be seen as a person, that that quite literally was a game changer for me. But it, unfortunately, it's a lot of people that don't have that experience prior to getting out. So it's a lot of antisocial tendencies that may be adopted. So I think that's one thing that um, I feel definitely can alter the treatment, but ult- ultimately help people grow. When when you hear that a person has been incarcerated and they're now out, when you treat them as a person, when you're willing to help them, when you're willing to embrace them um, in, in those type of ways, I think that yeah. can definitely alter a lot. And, and as well as like fair chance hiring. Unfortunately, it's a lot of people that see uh, returned citizens, formerly incarcerated people, and, and and they see the stigmas that come attached with the experience right? versus the value of the person versus the work that they put in, such yes. as like like be, being formerly incarcerated, being a returned citizen. We have a lot to offer, especially in the work field. It's a lot of dedication. It's a lot of loyalty. Right. It's a lot of appreciation. Like we don't take these type of experiences or chances and opportunities for granted. We spent a lot of time in a box. So now that we're out, we're going to give it all that we have. So it's a lot that can be gained from both ends. And that's I think true. that's something that a lot of people are asleep to. Any of us who've had incarcerated people in our family know that when they get out, they are the most motivated to show up to work on time and not <laughs> fuck up and go back again. In San right. Quentin, you you learned sound design and film while you were in yes. San Quentin. Can you tell us a bit about that process and how, how you made the discovery that that was where your passion was going to take you? Absolutely. So film actually became a very surprising passion for myself. Um, music was always my number one passion. That's been my heart. Um, it's quite literally in my genetic makeup. No exaggeration. Uh, I have a bunch, I come from a long lineage of musicians. Um, but shortly after I got to San Quentin, I was pulled into a space called the Media Center. And it was a lot of people there that seen my music value. And it was a man by the name of Adnan Khan running a media project um, called First Watch, where we utilize film to tell the stories to humanize incarcerated people to combat the na- to, to combat the narratives that were getting sensationalized. And um, I initially got brought on to be the sound guy to do sound design for that and, and do the scores and all that. However, it was only a three man team. So we had to learn everything from post-production wow. to pre-production. Um, we had to learn everything. Great. And from there, like reading books and just understanding how film was used, I, I began to really understand it was an art. And from there, my passion was just, oh, my goodness, it, it was second to none. It Well, besides music, of course, music was still number one, going to be honest. Uh, however, like I couldn't even watch TV the same anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. It, it became a trip. But that's how that developed. And that's how that came about. You know, Chris, it's it's amazing to think about um, the training and expertise that you are providing to uh, people behind bars. Have you had anybody flip out or be at all uh, taken aback when you discuss the concept of letting incarcerated people have laptops and have access to laptops? I mean, you're teaching tech. I'm sure you had some pushback on this from people who didn't really think through the practicality and morality of your program. 
Well, that was a big step. I, I, you know, I've been working on this idea of putting laptops in prison for seven years. So, you know, it, um, the idea of putting technology in prison was uh, a concept that many in corrections had to get over. The idea of having someone walk around with a laptop in prison and taking it back to their housing unit was a new concept. And um, now we've been doing that for about a year and a half, and the results are extraordinary. Uh, e and I were just in San Quentin about a month ago, and uh, we were in Putnamville Prison last week in Indiana, and both of those have, the, the folks there have laptops, and the impact, the ability for them to do their work, uh, take it home, um, and be productive, but also there's a real pride in carrying that around, like this is a badge of honor, in a sense, yeah. and it also you know, prepares people even more. Now in the in the workplace, we are remote workers. And so this reflects actually how you work. They take that with them anywhere they go. And they're not connected to the internet directly, but they can do all of the work on that laptop. So it's another way to actually, you know, um, sort of mirror what's actually happening when they get out. I'm really curious, how did COVID affect the program the past couple of years? Yeah, well, you know, we we couldn't do classes for a while when they completely shut them down. So lockdowns were kind of throughout the country. But as we started coming back and we started doing social distancing in the classroom, we were actually one of the few programs that could run nationally because we do everything remotely. Right. All of our all of our instruction is done remotely from um, our uh, remote instructors. We have our a command center in San Francisco that actually manages and monitors every computer, so we could actually get up and running pretty quickly. And that actually is is um, the the sort of the main reason why we're so, um, you know, the ability to to prop up a program for us pretty quickly is because the remote component is the right basis on. for how we teach the program. And what's the waiting list look like today? It's pretty big. Um, you know, we're trying to expand not only <clears throat> across the country, but even in the prisons that we're in, we're trying to add classrooms. You know, space is always limited in prisons. Um, but now we teach uh, software engineering and audio video production. So both of those programs are teaching different disciplines. So we have a broader section of people, cross section of people who can be accepted in the program. But yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty revered program. And we're, we're trying to expand as quickly as we can. So in closing, let me ask you guys, what can listeners expect in, in terms of the storytelling that we'll be getting and, and the lessons we'll be getting? I know that our friend Sway uh, is going to be a guest on your first episode. Go ahead, E. Yeah, so Sway was our first guest, and, and you can definitely listen in for Stories of Transformation. We'll be diving deep into Stories of Transformation, speaking with a bunch of different agents and change from um, people like Sway, you know, live personalities, as well as people from sports, people to politics, people in pop culture, um, in the music industry, returned citizens. Like, we're, we're quite literally, we're, we're not making lines, we're creating circles. You know what I mean? One, one of my biggest... <laughs> takeaways from this show i feel like we're going to bring so many people together from different political parties just people in general like yeah, it, it's yeah. such a powerful show 
Yeah, I think too, it's for, for people like me who were never in prison, and it was pretty opaque. We're trying to create some transparency into the stories and the lives of, of people that we now see a lot. And so just peeking behind the walls a little bit, um, I think it'd be really, really not only entertaining, but informative for, for people to listen to so we hope people people you know dial us up and uh, and check it out how can our listeners follow you gentlemen and keep up with all your work um well they can follow us uh, on the last mile at tlm on twitter and we have a facebook page we're we're on in linkedin and most of the social media platforms my personal one is at chris redlitz mine is at Maserati underscore underscore E on Twitter. I'm, I'm mainly on Instagram. No, that's at the real Maserati underscore E. Okay. I'll follow and you. You can also post. listen to us, as you know, John, all the time on the Sirius XM app. Yes. That's it. You could listen live to the premiere. on. It's on channel 111, the Triumph channel, this Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 noon on the East, or listen anytime on demand or on the SiriusXM app. Gentlemen, this is such a pleasure and an honor. I could talk about this issue for days. <laughs> thank you for inspiring me, and thank you for helping evolve the U.S. justice system in a very entertaining way. Last Mile Radio. What a pleasure. We'll be right back with your calls. We're at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm John saying This is SiriusXM Progress. Chris, we can remember. We can, can we like Van Morrison again? Are we able to like Van Morrison music or is it all about shots and masks still? I don't, I don't know what to do. It's up to mm-hmm. him. I guess, yeah. We have a lot of audio to play tonight, including my crush, Stacey Elizabeth Plaskett, the uh, representative. The Well, she's the delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives from the U.S. Virgin Islands. You know, they have an at-large congressional district and they send her to Congress, but she doesn't get to vote on anything. But she gets to be on committees and she handed Jim Jordan his butt today. Until we get to that, let's go to the phone. Some of you all been on hold for a while. Mike in Maryland, thank you for your patience. Welcome. Hi, John. Hi, Chris. Hi. I'm Mr. Hello. Okay, so um, that young man's story, I was, I, I, oh, my God. His story is my story. Tell me. The, the, the problem, well, I, I'm, I'm a convicted felon. Um, I was 15, turning 16 when I caught my charge, okay? Yeah. Um, I'm 56 now. Now, the problem for me wasn't, the money issue, I, I, I was a follower. That's how I ended up in trouble. And I after that, I vowed never to follow again. 
So I've been leading my own path. I make six figures right now as a professional truck driver. But I'm still living the same prison box. The prison Mm. box of no matter what I do, I am considered a felon. There is no incentive for men, women, once they come out, to change their life unless they want to change their life. There's no incentive for that. You don't think so? You don't think so? What was the incentive for you? The incentive for me would be to be able to get earn my full rights back. Okay, I've yeah. got them. In, I was it was nineteen eighty three. I am in two thousand and twenty three, and I cannot get my felony expunged. The one charge on my whole record, I cannot get it expunged, no wow. matter what I do. I recently got rearrested for some BS. It got thrown out, but the commissioner gave me a no bail. Why? Because I was a convicted felon. Hmm. Jesus. Okay. And yep. I, I swear, John, if you don't believe me, we can talk. No, about I believe you. I, I, I no, I believe you. I believe you. And it's like this is exactly what I said. It's 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 a system. There's too much money to be spent keeping people in cages. And, yes. and so the system is rigged and it's makes they, they make it hard, not just for people to believe in themselves. They make it hard for people to ever believe there's a way out of this to climb exactly. and rise. I get but it. Once you make it out of it and Maserati, Maserati E, brother, keep stepping. It's a struggle. It's hard. Yeah. You keep going and you keep moving and you never let nobody take you down. Again. Was there yeah. a moment, Mike? Was there a moment for you when you realized that you were going to be okay? Once I, once I walked out of those doors and I decided that I was going to change my life, I went through a whole bunch of different jobs and realized that, no, I want to go get in this truck. And once I got behind this wheel, I never looked back. Right on. I never looked back. I love my job. I love being out on the highway. I love spreading my wokeism to my conservative friends. I piss them <laughs> off every time I'm on the radio. You know? <laughs> so my thing for the, and, and, and I, if I can just give a message to the conservative people please, out there, please remember when you asked me about why do they like the lies, and I told you it's like that favorite spoonful of crap, and it just kept getting shoveled in. Well, that's yeah. where they are now. So instead of being mad and trying to, and this is for you, my conservative friend, that I don't know and that I do know, instead of trying to blame everybody else for the lies that you continue to spit every time somebody knocks down something that you talk about and you come up with something else, yeah, but what about, what about, stop doing that. Go look yeah. in the mirror and ask myself, will I accept that lie from my child, my wife, my friend, my neighbor? That's no, it. Would not. So why the hell are you accepting it from people that don't give two crap about you? Wake Mike, up. Mike, you, you can call into this show any night, man. It is really a pleasure to benefit from your wisdom, and I, I, I thank you for it. And I thank you for your service as a truck driver as well. Well, thank you for letting me on, and you guys keep doing what you're doing. I don't get to listen to you all the time, John. I, get, I catch you sometimes live. Sometimes I, know. I catch you on a recap. But well, they... <laughs> Yeah, man. I, Thanks, I man. Thanks. They put us on at the most convenient hour possible. So thank you, Mike. Thank you. Have a great evening and drive safe. Let me go to Mark in uh, South Dakota. Mark, thanks for your patience on hold. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Can you hear me? I sure can. Right. Hi. Hey, uh, okay, good. All right. Uh, okay, so my point I was saying to Thea is uh, going way back to your opening monologue and asking, like, why do they do all this bullshit? Why do they drive everyone away? And my central... Uh, 
thesis to this is because they know they don't have to, because they already are working with a you know a minority power, and they know that that can continue because the way the Constitution is set up, the way that well, I guess it's just my general theory that like they own rural excuse me, they own rural America so thoroughly that the nat- natural advantages that their base has are enough to like kind of hold things down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The Senate, I mean, the electoral college, uh, and I, I, you know, where I live, like, you know, it, every time there's an election, there's always that fucking like, you know, show the, you know, show the county by county map. And we all know it's bullshit. It's like, you know, it's the, Ooh, look, you know, that's their land that's red and so forth. But the, the, inter- the overall thing to that though, you have to keep in mind is that every last one of those counties has like a sheriff that's, you know, gonna, you know, that's going to, you know, incarcerate the right people, uh, you know, arrest them and so forth. Uh, you got, like, county commissioners and auditors that are going to, you know, throw out the votes and, you know, state yeah. legislators, or legislators that are, you know, like, uh, trying to think who this is. Is it Bob Seska? Is it Sudbay that's always, well, occasionally talking about convention of the states? And, yeah. So, I mean, they have state houses. They have, you know, the, you know, all these down ballot and things that are just owned by the fact that they own all these counties. And and the, and the, there aren't that many swing states anymore. So so let me ask you though, why 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 do you think they have such a a fierce control of rural America? Is it is it abortion? Is it tribalism and racism? Why do you think that they continue? I mean, we always ask the question. Liberals are always saying, why do these white folks, hardworking, conservative white people, keep voting for this party that's never going to put them first? To me, it's like, why Why would the Confederates go fight for the plantation owners? I mean, why do you think they have this power? Well, my general theory, yes, abortion is a big one, and I was going to bring that up, like going back to that first call about, like, that. there's so much bullshit in, like, what are you talking about, but... I wanted to single out about like him saying like how Democrats always talk about as like bullshit. Like my entire life, you can boil boil down a Republican's message to as to every campaign is basically baby murder and socialists are coming for your guns. <laughs> That's it. So, well, woke woke baby murderers, like, the baby, worst kind. Woke yeah, child murderers. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you're right. Uh, yeah, I, it's. it's I'm trying to think of all. There is a whole lot of culture. Uh, hang on a second. I no worries. Have another I, call. I have to, uh, so it's okay. I have it's to, all good. I have to let you go. All right. Okay. All right. Thank all you. Right. Anyway, I, I gotta. I gotta take. Did he leave? I think we lost him. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just, Thanks, I, just, I just wanted to hope he got across the freeway. He clearly was I, trying to w- walk across a six-lane freeway. Is that what was going on? I thought he was driving, ne- and there was a truck that pulled up next to him. Like there was either, like either that or he lives in a conch shell. I'm, he could have been on a speedboat on the open seas in, 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 in hurricane winds. There's a lot of possibilities there. Boy, man, we got we to talk a little bit about these hearings today. The Twister. No, we got to talk about the Twister that is Representative Stacey Plaskett from the U.S. Virgin Islands. She, she's a lawyer. She's very smart. She used to be a Republican. She was appointed by Bush to serve in the civil division of the Department of Justice back in uh, 2008. She became a Democrat in late 2008 because she thought that was the only place to have new ideas heard. And she was one of the impeachment managers in the second Trump impeachment. Okay, she's the first non-voting member of the House of Representatives to do show. And she's another example of taxation with semi-representation. But she was on fire today. And I just want to play a couple of clips really quick. Here she began 
by asking Jim Jordan if he plans to use the the the, the information during today's hearing that he never gave Democrats a chance to review. And Jim Jordan's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So here's Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett calling out Jim Jordan for withholding information from the Democrats in the hearing. Thank you. Before uh, my opening statement, um, Mr. Chairman, as a point of order, it's been my understanding that one of the witnesses has, within the last half an hour, released additional information that the Republicans may, and you as the majority, may have been able to review and have uh, information about. And if that information is, in fact, going to be used at this hearing, I just want the point of order to be recognized that uh, the Democrats have not been able to review or to see any of that information. Will, be you, will you be using any of the information that uh, has recently been released by, excuse me? Will you be using any of that information? We'll be using whatever information that our staff has put together for us to use at this hearing. And I have you, you had that information before this hearing began, um, before today? We, we, we use all information that, that is given to He's our staff, dodging. and we will use it to make sure we educate and the American people. And information that you have not shared with us? Oh, we think it was posted online. That, uh, in within a half, just this half an hour, the last 20 minutes, but it's not information Wait, do you that want was to get, to us before you want us that. to get you a copy of it? Because we can make a I copy I think we can you. go online and find a copy. We can look on our Twitter accounts and see it. But I just want the point of order that you have not shared any of that with us. And I understand. Okay, so Stacey Plask gets there to point out how rigged all of this is. And here she explains what's really going on with this GOP stunt of a hearing. Three weeks ago, House Oversight had this hearing with actual Twitter executives who had actual firsthand knowledge about what happened in 2020. And that didn't go so well for the House Republicans because real evidence showed that there wasn't coordination between Twitter and the federal government as they'd like the American people to believe, and that all the so-called Twitter files really showed was a discussion on content moderation and that we only got a fraction of the discussion. So now we're back again, no surprise, what else have they got to talk about? Not what's interested in the American people are interested, not what taxpayer dollars have brought us here to Washington to do. And the Republicans have brought in two of Elon Musk's public scribes. Public scribes. Matt Taibbi is one of them. And when we come back, we're going to take your calls, talk to Thea Harper, talk to Keith Price, and play a little bit more of Debbie Wasserman Schultz just delivering a eulogy on Matt Taibbi and Representative Plaskett bringing it to Jim Jordan like you want to hear. This is SiriusXM. XM. 